0: Tom Cranwater is a recovering academic, suggesting that the Declaration of Independence was the beginning of emancipating slaves and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a terrible policy were among the reasons he didn't fit in well with the progressive university faculties. I'm John Caldera, President of Independence Institute. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to YouTube.com and searching for our channel, IITV which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're going to love this discussion. Great buddy of mine, usually we drink whiskey, but for some reason he says, I got to drive. Tom Cranwetter, (laughs) recovering academic, speakeasy ideas. You actually talk about constitutional, libertarian, free market ideas, and and you make a living out of this. You, you, you know
1: why, John? Because like you, I, I care about people. I know we hide it pretty well. But the bottom line is I like to see people thrive. I really enjoy it. And I, and I hate to see the opposite. And even the most brief scan of history reveals that where people thrive the most is where they're free. It's how, they, it's how they prosper. And I've been trying to share that basic message with people most of my adult career.
0: You know, it is funny that... Evil capitalism, evil people who promote capitalism, evil people who want to exploit the working class, who want to oppress minorities and oppress those victim classes. It's those systems where people have gained the most in the shortest amount of time, where they've gained the most in commercial uh, uh, well being, they've in commi- physical well being yep. and mental well being and standard of living where they've learned the most, where they've had the opportunity, where they've had the most social <laughs> and economic mobility compared to collectivist <laughs> and, and, and totalitarian states.
1: I just want to add, you know, some things people often forget things like um, religious liberty where people can actually cultivate the kind of relationship with God they want to cultivate and go to the church of their choice. Or not. Or not.
0: I don't go to church. That
1: doesn't happen under totalitarian regimes. That happens in regimes of, of freedom, of liberty, being able to associate with the kinds of people you want to associate with and not associate with those you don't want to associate with. All those kinds of things that make life better those things are found in regimes of freedom, and you know it's it's one of the great crises. I, you, you joked earlier, and, and I joke often. I'm a recovering academic. Uh, I went through. I, I wanted to see the the whole process through to the PhD. So I, I earned the PhD from the Claremont Graduate School out in Cal- California, of all places. See, I,
0: can't, and, I, <laughs> I can't. I couldn't cheat that much. I couldn't make that many crib notes to get get a postgraduate degree.
1: And and I spent a fair amount of time in that academic world, teaching and and doing research. And it's really interesting, in the whole realm of the social sciences, so these are disciplines like political science, and sociology, and anthropology, and others, there's this big push to identify a problem, and then immediately start brainstorming, usually with the help of very progressive professors, about what kind of government programs and policies will mitigate these, these problems but there's almost no comparative political studies that is starting with basic things like let's look around the world and let's look at places where there's a lot of government control where there's a lot of central planning and let's see how life is what life is like in those places and then let's look at places that are relatively free and let's see what that's like and let's come that's not what the academic world is today it's it really is a form of advocacy for progressive policies and programs.
0: You make a living. You've you've been a teacher. You've been a professor. You've you've done this. Why is it that you find that older people, the elderly, (laughs) that are drawn so much to your teachings? And and what I mean by this, and you see it at CU, they have their visiting scholar of conservative Mm -hmm. thought. You go there and you see a lot of gray hair in the classroom yeah. who are drawn to these classes. Uh, why? And well, speakeasy ideas. I don't yeah. want to put a plug for it because yeah. it's really wonderful. Thank you. It's, it's not a bunch of 18 year olds who are knocking on the doors going, give me more of this. Right. Why is it usually right. or often people with gray hair who want to hear more about this?
1: Well, I think um, what you, you have an older generation of Americans. Who uh, many of whom didn't pay much attention to yeah. politics, to culture. They, uh, they were busy. They were running their businesses and raising their families and doing all those kinds of things ordinary people do. And at some point in recent years, they started looking around thinking, my goodness, what is happening to my country? We're, we're losing this thing called the United States. It's, it's barely recognizable. And that's when they get engaged. And then they want to learn more so they sign up for courses and presentations and they start reading essays and books and they want to know more about how this country got started and what happened where did it go off off the rails the off the rails part is really exciting if you're 19 years old and you're a freshman or sophomore at cu right what the older people think is going off the rails That is, that's the hippest, coolest thing around. That's the source of energy and inspiration for young students at typical university and and college campuses.
0: When you say it's the fun thing, I get it. They see the injustice. And the victim celebration that goes on now is all the rage. You can't get enough of it. And (laughs) spoke to somebody just last week who's the head of the Colorado Log Cabin Republicans. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Dude, I'm I'm gay, all right? We've come a long way. I have rainbow exhaustion." <laughs> he said, "I'm tired of being used. That every every product, every yep. restaurant, every commercial is throwing rainbows in our faces. Like, stop it. I've got fatigue." And I'm a victim. No, no, no. I'm, I'm the victim, and I'm doing okay right now. Let's let's just talk about the, the homosexuals in the Middle East who are still being stoned right. and hung and right. killed. Let's talk about the real victims now. So, a few weeks back was Juneteenth, and the celebration of, of the emancipation of slaves, which was actually the 13th Amendment. What I loved about Juneteenth is when slaves in Texas Mm -hmm. got the notification they were slaves, which is really a celebration of Texas, which is funny. You you wrote something on Juneteenth. Hit me with this because it's getting to be a little bit like uh, the French Revolution or after Stalin died in Russia, they change the name of Stalingrad to something else, and statues would go yeah. up and statues would go down, depending upon the, the the tastes and whims of whoever is in charge and whatever the tastes were at the time. It's like, what? What? I can't go to the bank today because what? <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, so I, I might
1: be one of your few friends who who well I might be one of your few I friends. don't have period. A period. Yeah, no. uh, but I also might be one of your f- few friends who uh, celebrates Juneteenth. I, I I promote Juneteenth. I actually like what it is, and, and I'm going to try to tie it together here with, with the conversation we've been having. You know, when you think about victimhood in a bigger sense, it always implies some standard of right or a standard of justice, a standard of morality, and, and then we look at various instances throughout history where those standards were violated, where someone treated someone the way they shouldn't because, they, because there's this standard. And I always think about these things in, in terms of uh, almost like philosophic judo, which is y- using the, the momentum of your opponent against them. I'll agree with uh, the victimhood studies classes in our universities that, yeah, there have been many wrongs and there have been many injustices. And how is it we know they're wrong? And how do we know they're unjust? And eventually, those little progressive students who are cheering for whatever the victimhood cause of the day is, they eventually come to the idea that we're all equal in some fundamental, important sense. I say, ah, there's the standard. Has there ever been a country, has there ever been a nation founded on that that standard? Has there ever been a group of people who made it their mission to preach and teach and inspire the rest of the world with that idea? And the answer is yes, it's the United States of America. So it turns out uh, they, what they want to do, these critics of America, is they want to challenge the goodness of America. They want to denounce America based on the standards that the Americans embraced in their own Declaration of Independence, in their own movement to create a, a sovereign regime. And that's kind of the framework of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is, is one of the capstone events after the the Civil War, and and the Civil War alone, I I, I think it's worth just recalling briefly the sheer terror and horror and destruction and death of the Civil War. It's easy to gloss over the Civil War as, you know, there's this this big important fight we had a long time ago, but I, I think it's hard for modern Americans to really wrap their minds around what that conflict was. In terms of our population, total number of Americans. Today we're approximately, I'm, I'm going to use really- no, It's about 330 million-ish. Yeah. It, I was going to use really round numbers because I know you're not great with math, John. So, Me
0: uh, the, good with the, math. <laughs> the,
1: these are really round numbers. But we're about 10 times the size as a nation that we were at the time of the Civil War. and the number of dead, and keep in mind these are Americans slaughtering Americans, rounds up to around 700,000. There's some historians now suggesting it's over 700,000. But if we use that number, 700,000, then an equivalent civil conflict today would be, would be a fight in which seven million Americans would be slaughtered. Now that's that's hard to get our minds around. That's what Americans did. That was the price that they paid in part to get rid of this, this heinous, ancient, ugly institution of slavery. And they did that within two generations, or to use Lincoln's dating at Gettysburg, they did it within four score and seven years after their own declaration of independence. And and keep this in mind: getting rid of slavery wasn't their only goal. In fact, it wasn't even the most important goal. And I, and I say that with, with, as someone I've been studying the, the history of slavery and, and related matters in, uh, in the United States most of my career. But before they could get around to figuring out how we're gonna get rid of slavery, they had to do things like figure out what are we gonna do after we beat the British? In fact, first they had to figure out how are we gonna beat the British? We gotta beat the British. And then once they figure out how to beat the British, what's going to happen? I don't know if you've, have you seen the uh, the musical Hamilton? Uh, I'm actually, no. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of it. I like it. It's based on very solid right. history. It's based on Ron Chernow's right. beautiful biography. And there's this scene where they're, they're dancing this groovy, you know, hip hop song about what's next. And what they mean is after they beat the British... Right. What are we going to do? Right. Are we going to have a king? Or if we're not going to have a king, what what are we going to do? There was no blueprint. There was no you know. There was no user's no. manual to open up. I, I don't think
0: Americans, most Americans, don't have any idea how unique the American experience is. The idea that this experiment in self governance, built on the idea that individuals themselves are sovereign, that we have inalienable rights, that we have right to liberty, right to life, that we are on ourselves, a kingdom to ourselves, this this is unheard of (laughs) in the history of mankind. Any rights that we've ever had were granted to us by Magna Carta, that, that the king gave us some rights and God gave the king right. No, no, no. We flip that on, the, on its heads. How do you answer this yeah. one? If you don't mind me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, white old man, that's very nice. But those founders were slave-owning white guys who had land and wealth and that doesn't forgive them for what we today look at As a moral sin, so they say all men are created equal. How the hell? Who the hell do they think they are? (laughs) Right. Women didn't have rights. Blacks didn't have rights. Native Americans didn't have rights. And here they are saying all men are equal, but
1: didn't even live up to their own words. When 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 someone says, you know, uh, uh, denounces the founding generation of Americans because of the injustice of slavery. And they say, they, look at how terribly immoral they were. <clears throat> I like to point out, it's precisely because of this American experiment in self-government, that is the reason we today look at slavery as a great wrong. That, in its, that was a, a title sea-changing, uh, sea-change of opinion regarding slavery. Slavery is this old thing It's been around certainly throughout all of recorded history. So we're going back 6,000 years. It is still around. It's still around today. It's been around for a long, long time. It is a global phenomenon. Slavery has existed on every continent in the world except uh, 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 Antarctica because, well, it's Antarctica. and There's some penguins down there. There There are no people there. That's it. And so when you look at that world out of which this American experiment in self-government emerges. It's a world dominated by slavery. It's a world dominated by slave trading. It's a world where the most populated continents on the planet are continents uh, dominated by slavery. The Americans are talking about independence. At the very moment, African tribes on the west coast of Africa, they stop. Specializing in making cloth or growing crops or raising cattle and ranching. And instead, some of those tribes start turning to specialize in slavery. That's what they they become expert hunters of human beings. They go and raid neighboring tribes and they kidnap and they enslave people. Up to 12.5 million people, they kidnap and enslave. And then sell off to slave traders uh, and their they're rowed out, you know, to slave boats. And, and it's one of the things we, But we, have, we Europe, have such a gross. Europe didn't a, a,
0: have slaves. Europe was not full of slaves at that time. While England was complicit in slave trading,
1: yeah. they 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 didn't have a nation full of slaves at the time. Well in the southern part of Europe there were slaves in the form of Europeans who were being kidnapped. <laughs> by, right by, by Africans and, and sold into they had, slavery they had in, class in North Africa. You yeah. know,
0: India had a class system, which yeah. was slavery. Yeah. The the English, nobody had rights to property and things like that. But they didn't own people. This they
1: facilitated it. American Southern states had slavery. Yeah, well, in the Northern states too. And this is this is what makes this whole story so both beautiful and tragic. Is in this very flawed world, this group of people stands up and they're, they're flawed, they're imperfect. They are, they are part of the culture that surrounds them, which is, which is in part a slave culture and they make this announcement, all men are created equal and, and as they make that announcement, they're talking about it, they're thinking about it and it leads many Americans to come to the, the logical moral conclusion, well, we got to get rid of slavery. Slavery is a bad thing. If our principles are true. This, this institution, this practice is really bad and so the American Revolution sparks what I've described as the greatest anti-slavery movement in all of history. Nothing comes close, no group of people, no nation, city, tribe, clan, anywhere did what the Americans did within t- two generations. I mean, we have to, it didn't take them hundreds of years or thousands of years, it was two generations to get rid of slavery constitutionally in a nation that was born in a world dominated by slavery.
0: Let me put it this way and tell me if if you might agree with this wording. The truth of all men are created equal was so powerful the guys who wrote it didn't even realize they couldn't understand how truthful it was. They couldn't Mm -hmm. see
1: the truth in their
0: own situation.
1: I, I think they could. I'm going to disagree really? with you really? on that. Yeah. Um, well, and also... But, let, let, let's take the sort of the, the, the prime case is Thomas Jefferson. In a way, he's the most difficult of, of all the founders. Number one, he's the primary author of the Declaration right. of Independence. There are some who make edits and there's a committee of revision, right. so it, it does get changed a little bit. But that famous line, that's his, all men are created equal. That, that, those words don't change. And you have this man who's famous as a, as a plantation owner, as a slave owner. There are all kinds of rumors later in his life that he's right. fathering children with slaves. So what we see is this, is this glaring contradiction, what appears to be a contradiction. Now, one, I, I always like to remind people, we, in our modern world today, we seem to think hypocrisy is the greatest of all evils. Well, it turns out as long as as long as there are standards of right and wrong, and human beings aren't perfect, there are going to be there's going to be hypocrisy, and I'm happy that there's hypocrisy because it means there's at least some standards of of right and wrong, right? <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. We could that. get rid of all the right. standards, and then would there be no hypocrites at all? I would rather have the standards and have some some hypocrites, but even Jefferson himself, and I, I'm not going to sugarcoat Jefferson in any way. Jefferson writes some really ugly things as he's observing black people about how they function, how they think, how they speak, how they smell, how they appear, that they appear to be inferior to other groups of people in many ways. But he always comes to this moral and political conclusion. He wrote and said and meant in terms of their individual natural rights, black people are the equal of all other people. All human beings have their own natural right, their equal natural right to their own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and therefore slavery's wrong. That's Jefferson, right? Which is this amazing thing that this guy, who he, he grew up on a slave plantation. I always like to, to encourage people to think of the founding fathers not merely as adults, right? We think of them as as adults and what they did. And that's when we build statues, right? We make the, but Tom Jefferson at one point was a two year old and a three year, he was a little kid. And when he was a little kid, you know, the world he was surrounded by, world of slavery, a world of black slavery. So if Tom Jefferson grew up to be an apologist for slavery, that would not have been a surprise. What was a surprise is that this man who grew up around slavery came to denounce this very institution and helps to spark this anti-slavery movement, this idea, we got to get rid of it, even though he didn't have any clear plan of how to do that quickly or expeditiously. It's interesting thing.
0: you put it that way. The only founder we think of as a child, chopped down a cherry tree. <laughs> That's right. All right. <laughs> Let me fast forward to something in my lifetime, at least the beginning of my lifetime, the Civil Rights Act. I want to get this done in just a few minutes. The Civil Rights Act I look at as a positive. What it says is in places of public accommodation, Mm -hmm. you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. I think of a black couple going through the South and they need a place to stay. It's a hotel. That's a place of public accommodation. We're not talking about a private club. It's a restaurant. It's a place of public accommodation. You know, I, I think they should be open to anyone, no matter what their age, race, religion. Uh, my son has Down syndrome. I would want a restaurant to serve my son. Right. I'm thinking that's, that's America. I think, I think this is an important bit of regulation, a bit of law that says... We are all equal, we should be treated equally even in a private establishment. I've always seen this as a very positive bit of law. Now, you, I, you disagree I, with me. Yeah,
1: I, I'm, I, I disagree with you. I'm, I'm not a fan. Because you're a racist. In, in fact, I... Because you <laughs> hate
0: my son. You met my son. I Remember yep. when you met yes. him? You yes. said, you're yes. a very nice young man. I hate <laughs> you.
1: I don't want you to get service in a restaurant. Yes. So, uh, and no, I did not say that, but, but I do recall meeting your son. Um, so let, 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 let's put this in context here. Um, I mean, let's also throw out... An, an, an observation, and and I would I would be interested to know if anyone in our audience disagrees. And that is, race appears to be a problem still today, still in twenty twenty three. We have all these laws, all these regulations. Why hasn't that problem been resolved or, or or gone away? And and I think I have part of the part of the answer, and I think part of the problem are provisions of the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act, like Title II, which is the public accommodations. Uh, if you go back to that anti-slavery movement, it culminates in this tremendous civil war. And it, 1865, several important things happen. Lee surrenders. In the, uh, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, gets a bullet blasted through his brain by, by an angry Democrat. In the summer, a U.S. Army general marches all the way. Lee has stopped fighting. But the slaves in Texas don't know that they're free yet, and so he announces to them that they're free. That same year, we eventually passed the 13th Amendment and we, we abolished slavery. Now, most of those f- newly freed former slaves, what they're asking for after the Civil War is freedom. They want liberty. They want, to be, they want their property to be protected. They want to be able to live in their homes, run their businesses, and not have thugs in white sheets the Ku Klux Klan show up in the middle of the night with torches and, and you know, rape and murder and burn their homes down. That's what they want. And groups of newly freed blacks start to migrate to places where they can at least get a semblance of freedom. One of the most tremendous stories is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and, and it's a shame yeah. that most Americans don't know what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the early, very early 1900s, teens. Thousands of freed Black Americans went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and not because the weather's great yeah. in, in Tulsa, right? They went there because, a- as more Black people started living there, they started to create their own law enforcement systems, their own criminal justice systems. They opened their own banks and restaurants and hotels and clothing stores, and they and they built houses and schools and libraries. They did all the kinds of things that free people did. They were so successful, John, that that place became nicknamed Black Wall Street because it was this, this enormous creation of wealth going on there, and it was mostly black people. And What they were asking for was not, they were not asking for affirmative action. They weren't asking for special perks or privileges. They weren't asking for a government policy that would command some restaurant owner to let them walk in the restaurant. They just wanted to be secure in their own freedom, their own property. And it was a, it was a great success until a bunch of angry white supremacists got so full of envy and hatred that they, they basically launched a race war and slaughtered thousands of people. It was one of the most heinous, horrific moments in American history. We've never achieved anything close to real equal protection of the laws for equal individual rights, which is exactly, if you go back and read just as one example, someone like Booker T. Washington after the Civil War, that's what he's calling for. Equal protection of the laws, that's it. No handouts, no special favors, Booker T. Washington and others at that time after the Civil War they wanted to bring an end to tribalism. Uh, They didn't want a culture of tribalism. They wanted a culture of we're all Americans, and so we should all be treated equally under the law. When, When critics today say, well, there's still systemic racism or institutional racism, things like this, I always like to point out there's one solution. There's one solution to systemic racism. Equal protection of the laws for equal Individual rights of every American, regardless of what they look like or what their gender is or what their sexual preferences are, equal protection of the law. That idea of equal protection for equal individual rights is incompatible with laws like the 1964 Civil Rights Act that come along and say, we're gonna pick out, we're gonna pick on certain property owners, we're gonna call their businesses public accommodation. By the, there's this great misnomer that these businesses are public accommodations the business owners weren't calling their businesses public accommodations many of them said we're not public at all we want to serve the friends and family members and people we offer to serve we're not open to the public it's lawmakers who come along and say we're going to call we're going to label your business a public accommodation and therefore we're going to command who you must engage in, in transactions with. The result of that are these ridiculous cases that are, that are now occupying the time of the United States Supreme Court. Cases like Jack Phillips, uh, guy who owns right. a bake shop in Lakewood, Colorado. Uh, Lori Smith has a case that's before the court, uh, her 303 creative. She makes websites and, and, and there are certain occasions and, and, and festivities that she doesn't want to make websites for. We've now gone so far from any idea of equal protection of the laws that we're now in the business of commanding property owners who they must engage in transactions and, and exchanges with. And I want you to think just for a second, as, as we think about this idea of public accommodations, we, we, ever since FDR in the 1930s and '40s and I, I don't want to get too distracted there, but since then There has been this conscious effort to change the meaning of the word business into something dirty, something nefarious. If if you're a business owner, then you must be looking to rip people off and cheat people and and hurt people. And that's why we need government to protect us from business. And, And yet, when you think of what a business does, it's not that there's a seller and there's a buyer. Rather, there are two individuals who are engaged in what should be a mutual voluntary exchange. That's two people. So when you go out, you're going to go shopping, and you go out with some cash in your your pocket because you earn a lot of money here at the Independence Institute, and when you go shopping, you take a lot lot of of cash with it. Think of how much you discriminate, how many ways you discriminate. You'll go into one store because you like the clothes they sell, but you don't go into another store because you don't like those clothes. You go into one restaurant because maybe you like the owner. Maybe you don't go into another restaurant because you don't like that owner. In other words, right, you're being choosy where and you you're spend And you're saying the business can
0: be choosy too. All right, let me, let me challenge you on this though. You're, you're, doing that, you're doing that libertarian-ish thing where you're, you're up here and you go, in a perfect world, you do this. Let's bring it down here, which is in a Jim Crow era where racism abounds and a person uh, needs needs a commodity. He needs food and he has to buy it. And he's traveling the state lines, or he's, you know, so he can find black stores in his black little neighborhood, which keeps him bottled up, doesn't give him the mobility he needs. And in a day before before the internet, information is power. Maybe he doesn't know about Black Wall Street; otherwise, he'd move his family to Tulsa. And he's traveling someplace. He needs a place to sleep. He needs a grocery store to buy food. Otherwise, he'll perish. You need these supplies. And there's Crannon where we're going, well, no, the guy should be able to choose with whom he does business. And if he doesn't like black people, he doesn't have to serve black people Mm because it's his place of business. I get that. And on an ideological
1: intellectual level, yes, I agree. I I think it works most importantly on a practical, Level. There's a a fellow. But but how do you you, explain that to the guy in
0: 1940 who's traveling and can't find a place for he and his kids to to sleep? Well, I'll
1: ask you just to turn this whole thing on its head for a minute and think. But to answer my question first. Um, You and I, I think we both know Bob Woodson. Now, Bob Bob Woodson is now, he's no longer a young man. Oh, I've interviewed Um, him a few times. And his life story is just tremendous. Uh, Bob Woodson, for the record, because many of our fellow citizens care about this so i'll i'll put it out there he has very dark black skin and he was one of the original civil Free rights yeah. uh, he, he was right there with martin luther king jr marching that, that was his world he was one of the movers and shakers in the civil rights movement of the 1960s he parted ways with them over the whole subject of education schools and forced bussing when right. judges started saying, you know, we're going to put some black kids on a bus and send them out into the suburbs to right. white schools and send white kids into the southern and all this. And in here, I'll, I'll give him credit. This is his line. Right. He loves to say uh, uh, the solution to forced segregation is not, not forced, forced integration, se- right. right? It's freedom. The solution is freedom. and. What Bob Woodson had, he, he not only studied this in an academic way, he, he he lived it, he saw it. Throughout the South after the Civil War, uh, there were two key figures, a guy named Julius uh, uh, Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington, they teamed up and they built thousands of schools for black kids. Right. Now these were black only. If you were white, you weren't welcome. It's, this, these were right. schools for black kids. In, in the former Confederate states, right, where, where, where there was slavery, and after uh, Brown versus Board of Education, there is this movement to forcibly, by government power, integrate all schools, and Bob Woodson's watching this, and, and many others too at that time, and he said, wait, wait, these Rosenwald schools are wonderful. They're serious schools. They're, they don't tolerate any kind of nonsense. You have to be well behaved and study and, and do your work if you want to keep your, your place here. And the federal government said, no, 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 that's, that's discrimination by race. That's a school for blacks only. You can't have that. And what, what Bob wanted was freedom. He, wanted, he said, wait, wait, if, if a group of people in a neighborhood or a town want to have a school just for black kids, and it's really good school, and all the black families in that area are saying, we want our kids to go to that school. Why shouldn't they be have the freedom to do that? Are you That's saying, the direction freedom goes. Are you saying it's
0: fine to have separate but equal?
1: I'm, I'm saying it's fine for free people to create any kind of institutions that they want to create. It sure sounds, a, a like, local, a sure local sounds school. like,
0: because if that kept going that way, it sure sounds
1: like separate but equal. Well, it, it it actually wasn't equal. It was superior. It was it was separate and superior. The those that, Rosenwald those, schools were those schools were separate
0: but equal. But you know there were a whole bunch of
1: inner city schools that were separate and crap. Well, and, th- and that's why those parents wanted to get their kids into those Rosenwald schools. Right. I mean, now we start touching on things like, you know, at, at the same time, the federal government, uh, this is a this is an intrinsic part of the whole story of Jim Crow and the modern history of of race as a social and political problem is the nationalization of education and so the federal government gets involved we're going to have you know public teacher unions controlling these schools and the conditions of the schools go down and down and down and now all of a sudden you have black families living in, in in Urban areas, in bad eh,
0: neighborhoods with bad government schools, bad
1: government all right, well, schools. All right, all all right me, all let is, me pressure you. This what all that is is, a, is an absence of freedom. But I want to I want to come. No, back no, and no, make, no, Hang
0: on. You let me let me okay. do this because I'm hearing a couple different things. Because if you want if you want equal protection and you want the law to do it in those southern states, the law wouldn't do it. Correct. All right. So the law failed because the minorities the um, uh, the physical minorities, black people, were also the political minority. And therefore, the political majority, white guys, wouldn't enforce the law. Yeah. So they needed the federal government to come in and enforce equal protection of the law. But also then, the federal government came in to take care of education and to, to, to say, no, we need to integrate the schools because separate and, yeah. uh, separate and equal isn't working. Yeah, it might be working for these great black-only schools with a tough curriculum and more working, but overall, they weren't working. Yeah. So it seems like I'm hearing two different things. No, one, you're, you're, one local, local control didn't give us the protection,
1: and national control screwed the pooch, too. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a whole lot of truth. So I, I I think you're making. So you're just you're, a hateful you're, you're, racist. You're making my, my case, and you hate my <laughs> son. <laughs> no, but you are making my case, and I appreciate that. Uh, How wh- so? How of, am I making your one case? One of the great tragedies in, in if we think of of the United States in terms of of constitutional history. So so think of the whole history of the United States from a constitutional perspective. There is a uh, there's another pivotal. Um, moment that comes with the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, in, in many ways, transforms the United States Constitution. Yeah. One could argue, in many ways, destroys the integrity of the original Constitution because right. the states are really important under the original Constitution. The states are the source of almost, almost all power except in matters of national defense and national security. And After the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment authorizes the national government to basically have oversight over the states, if the states are not offering equal, or providing equal protection of the laws. This combines in the 20th century with turning everything into a civil right. So education becomes a civil right, affordable housing becomes a civil right, a minimum wage at a job, right? All these things get turned into civil rights, which then come under the umbrella of the, of the 14th Amendment. And here's the, here's the ugly truth of the 14th Amendment, after the Civil War, I mentioned this before. You have a bunch of newly freed black men, women, children. Largely
0: uneducated, without any wealth, without any land. And
1: what they are clamoring for more than anything is their own freedom. They want their own freedom and safety. And there are bigoted white supremacists in the United States who refuse to leave those people alone, they will not leave them alone. This is how the Ku Klux Klan is created. These are basically pockets of domestic terrorists who think they're gonna gonna control black people through murder and arson and rape and and intimidation, including things like sitting there in their hoods with with weapons at polling stations, places where you go vote on election day and things like this. And so we get the 14th Amendment, because people in the states won't leave free black people alone. White supremacists, white bigots filled with hate won't leave them alone. In that situation, I want to make it clear what the problem is. The problem was an absence of equal protection of the laws. It wasn't that there was too little affirmative action or that there was too little race-based preferences. Nobody was asking for that. There was no equal protection of the laws. Then you move forward into the 20th century and you get all the problems with, with Jim Crow. There again, you have a failure to provide equal protection of the, of the laws for equal individual rights. And what this has meant historically is we went as a, as a nation, and, and, and I, have to, I have to add this because this is, a, this is a critical part of this history. It's not just the history of the United States. This is the history of the Democratic Party. And I mention that party because that party, which is the oldest party in in American history, you see the history of race by looking at the history of the Democratic Party. They went from being the party defending slavery, then defending uh, Ku Klux Klan and and domestic terrorism, and then defending Jim Crow, uh, you know, separate cars on trains and, and, and all that kind of nonsense, And then the next iteration, they went to the party of affirmative action and the party of race-based tribalism and political preferences, Um, and that's where we are still today. So to the point, it's not just the laws. We have laws now all the way up to the laws like the 1964 Civil Rights Act, state laws, local laws that treat people differently based on the color of their skin, Um, your, 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 your applications for jobs, for schools, in all, right, are judged differently based on the color of your skin. Uh, John, I would argue today we're, we're as tribal as ever in, in American history. And now it's gone beyond the laws. It's this cultural phenomenon that's devastating. We Americans today. We cannot even recognize wisdom because rather than recognizing a wise insight, we first ask, well, what color skin does the person have? Who said it, right? (laughs) And then we make a judgment uh, based on the color skin rather than if someone actually offered a wise insight. I I was uh, talking to some, some folks recently about the great challenge If James Madison reappeared today. James Madison, before the Constitutional Convention, he did this, this this tremendous thing. He surrounded himself with histories of constitutions, Greek constitutions, Roman constitu- con- constitutions throughout world history. He wanted to see what kind of constitutions have been tried before right. and what the results were so that he could think better and in terms of a constitutional design. If James Madison was here offering some constitutional advice to we Americans and said, you know, if you, if you have a constitutional design this way, it's likely to produce these kinds of results. But if you change this, how many millions of Americans would dismiss whatever he said because of the color of his skin? That's the effect that this kind of tribal attitude that we all belong to groups and if you're not in my group then not only do I not care about you, I can't even understand you and you can't understand me. I'll go one further. There is no test to
0: find out. Let me put it this way. We can look at your genes and tell you whether you're a boy or a girl. We can't tell you how you identify because we have to trust how you feel. Um, And we cannot give you a test to find out if you're a racist. There's not a blood test. Right. We, in the same way, you can only judge how you, how you identify. You know? And there's no, there's, there's, there's no blood test, he is a racist. That's only something that is, that is, I identify or don't identify, but it's only an accusation. So how do you judge how racist a society is? Well, first, I'll argue we're the least racist we have ever been in America. One, we're not in a civil war over the main issue of yeah. whether, whether or not we own one another. Two, there's one statistic I always go to, to judge how racist we are. Interracial marriages and interracial births. And we are such a racist country we just can't stop getting it on with right. people <laughs> of, of different races. Right. At an exponentially, not quite exponentially, but at an increasingly growing rate. Yeah. Which means, in yeah. four score in seven years from now, yeah. we might just get it on so much We'll be, we we'll all be MUDs. We'll just be mutts. Well, and, and, a- and at which point,
1: how do you fill out the damn form to yeah. find out which category of bigot you are? Those, you know, those those forms. By the way, the forms, the affirmative action forms, right? right. Where you check off what your, you know, yeah. background is. I mean, even even there's, Obama couldn't check off one of those damn forms. Yeah. right. It, I, and there's a huge, the problem with those forms reveals the lack of scientific basis for. Race. I mean, r- race as a race as a as a scientific phenomenon. This emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, this was this was cutting edge science. What's the phrase? Progressives like today. The science was settled. Science they said the, settled. the science was settled. Right. That indisputable humanity science. is divided into the consensus these, these races. Has been made. Uh, and it's so. Flimsy. There are these old books. I've 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 looked at some of them. Uh, phrenology was actually a a science of biological evolutionary science in the 19th century. This is where you they, feel
0: somebody's skull. Yes,
1: they, they would get skulls from all over the world, and then they'd compare them, and they have all these charts about thicknesses and indentations and bumps and lumps on the skulls, and from that, these scientists. Extracted hierarchies of race, that certain races were superior and others were inferior. Now, that is all hogwash. That there is no scientific basis for the concept of race. And and, and you see this in certain moments in time when you know these questions come up: how dark does someone have to be to be black? How Pale and pasty to some Especially me, to now, be white. Since you can identify yes. to be black. Yes. Uh, 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 what's our friend's name? Uh, R- Rachel Dolezal, right? Made this really clear when remember she was the was she the head of the of a state chapter, uh, to, I think, uh, of, of the NAACP. Yes. And she's white. Yes. And but she's she white. identified right. as black. Now, so while there's no scientific, there's no biological basis of race. It certainly is real as a social phenomenon. I mean, people in society use racial terms and they think in racial categories and they, and they lump people together. And the question is, can we get beyond that? Can we get past that? Our own founders held up the solution to that. That idea that you, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of the program, all men are created equal. There's the solution. We and take even, that and imbibe that. All right, let me, let's, let's see if we can rack this up. Just as
0: the men who signed onto the document that said all men are created equal, that statement was bigger than they were. Yes. That they couldn't even comprehend that they didn't fully comprehend how big that statement was. We're all equal. We don't even get that. They had slaves that they didn't quite even get, some of them didn't get that, maybe they did. Even today, almost 250 years later, we get all men are equal, but maybe we don't. And so we're still being racist, the difference is, instead of being racist by owning slaves we're being racist with affirmative action we're being racist by having these little boxes on on um on forms we're being racist by telling people you go here you go there you go here you do this because of your skin color or what you think your skin color is or what you think your genitals should be and that so we're still being bigoted not in as detrimental a way we're not putting you in physical chains, we're putting you in bureaucratic, educational chains, economic chains, and we're not putting you in slavery physically, we're putting you in slavery economically. You're not spending 100% of what you make and giving it to somebody, we're taking 50% of what you make and giving it to somebody else, so So you're only in
1: half slavery. Let's talk a little bit about the solution here. the solution doesn't come from race-based laws and policy. It, it doesn't come from public accommodation laws that, that, you know, identify certain property owners in the form of businesses and say, and say who, here's who you're going to do business with and who you're not, or here's who you have to hire and things. It, it, it's, that's not the solution. It's, it's not affirmative action policies. It's, it's, it's none of those group-based things. It is the sheer competition of life that free people, that capitalists enjoy in a free society. If you want a model of how these things go, the, the, the best model in the modern period is Jackie Robinson, the great baseball player. When uh, uh, Branch, uh, um, Branch Ricky Branch Ric- hired Jackie Robinson. Not to be
0: confused with Ricky Bobby <laughs> from Talladega <laughs> Nights. I'm
1: glad you pointed that out. My mind was actually gonna go there. <laughs> There were no black baseball players, and there was all kinds of hatred hatred and bigotry. But By the way, I I want to make this other point very briefly. Can you make a point briefly? I disagree with most Americans that racism is among our most serious problems. I I do not think it's among our most serious. In fact, I think it's way, way down. Racism is is an an opinion. That's what it is.
0: Racism is one of our biggest problems when the economy is running just fine. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, yeah. because then people can focus on things like right. that. What people's opinions are about others is not our biggest. problem. now, now once you cross a line and you start to violate rights, now, that's a that's a different question. But that's not simply an opinion. That's a that's an injustice. That's an action. Back to baseball, there were all these white supremacists making fun of Jackie Robinson. There's, there's actually a movie out there that I think does a pretty good job of. Showing what, what he was up against. I mean, it was, it was disgusting. It was repulsive. What people in the audience and right. other teams would be yelling and shouting was terrible. But you know what they did? They started winning. <laughs> they started, and it turned out Jackie Robinson wasn't merely black. He was a tremendous baseball player. This guy was good. He could play better than almost anybody else. And so they start winning, and other teams are watching this. Now this is, when this happened with the Brooklyn Dodgers, this is nearly two decades before the 1964 Civil Rights Act. There were no public accommodation laws saying you have to hire people of this color and that color and you can't hire these other people. You can hire anybody you want to hire and so you had owners of baseball teams who were white bigots saying, saying I'm not going to hire one of those black guys. Okay. Don't hire him. That's the word they and, use, and, by the they, way. And they lost. I'm
0: sure those those other bigots said, I'm not going to hire one of those <laughs> black guys. Right, right. All right. But let me retort, Jackie Robinson wasn't the best black player from the Negro Leagues. Right. Branch Rickey chose him because of his temperament, because yeah. they knew that those guys would be sliding into, into uh, yep. I think he played third base or first base, Cleats first. Yep. they knew people would be yelling the n word. They knew they'd be throwing things at him. They knew hotels would be like, eh, "Yeah, he's not sleeping in here." They he knew all this, so they got him because he was a great player. Yeah, and he they thought he had the temperament to handle this awful transition. You're right. There were be- baseball right. players better than he. You're right. So it wasn't purely merit.
1: So there was there are these well, subtleties in there as well. I mean, you're 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 absolutely right. What I'm referring to is the the, the competition among the teams, right? right? And yep. all of a sudden, the, the Dodgers start winning. They start winning World Series, and the rest of Major League Baseball center looking at that, thinking, some say, "Hey, we're going to go hire just we're just going to start hiring the most talented players we can find, regardless of their color." And then there are teams saying, "Well, I, I we're, we're not going to do that. We, we won't yep. allow anybody." Okay, okay. And through sheer competition, it's, within a decade. All of Major League Baseball is fully, it's kinda, you know, it's, integrated it's to use like the over. term.
0: The silliness of of um, you know the wage gap, the women get paid, you know, 79 cents right. on the dollar. Right.
1: So, well hang on a second. Yeah, John, if, why do you hire any men here yeah, at exactly? The you're, you're telling
0: me <laughs> that a guy whose job it is is to maximize profit yeah. could make twenty-one percent more like right. this right. just by hiring women? Yeah. Right. Well, no, I'm not doing that because <laughs> I'm not hiring those yeah, type of people. That's right. People want to get more information on
1: um, um, speaks, yeah. uh, Speakeasy, speakeasy ideas. ideas. Tom Cranwitter in general. Yeah. Uh, they can follow me on speakeasyideas.com. Also, I have sort of an unusual uh, public Facebook page. And I, I say it's unusual because it's sort of an ongoing because you do it all intellectual topless. salon. Well, and there's that. There's too. that. Yeah, yeah, the calendar yeah. is incredible. Yeah, that's right.
0: Don't no, talk that's, with the that's, Facebook page.
1: That's face. my, uh, I'm going to screw this up. I, I was <laughs> saying, what's it, not MySpace. What's it called? Oh, no, no, OnlyFans. Uh, yeah, OnlyFans. That's my OnlyFans <laughs>
0: page. God, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't unsee that in my mind's eye. Oh, help <laughs> me. What's a Facebook page? Uh,
1: at at Tom Cranowitter. They can find me there or uh, go look at speakeasyideas.com. Hey, man, thanks again. This is always a kick. Thank you, John.
0: Cheers. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.